and good morning. We're glad you're here to worship with us. And I want to ask if you would turn in your copy of the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we'll continue our study of this important book from the Apostle Paul to his, this young pastor by the name of Timothy. And as we think about today's message, I've entitled it, Trained for Godliness. Trained for Godliness. You know, um, reading this week about some of the, the programs and the regiments that some of the top athletes in the world go through to prepare to be able to compete in their respective sports. And there are some pretty amazing things that I read uh, feats and accomplishments and things that uh, these men and women will do to discipline themselves to prepare um, to be in the Olympics or for football or you name it. Uh, one such man was, that I came across was a man by the name of David Groggins. He's a former Navy SEAL and uh, he decided to get into ultra marathon running. And so this guy has just all kinds of different things he does to, tr- to train. Uh, not only does he run, but he's um, He's a strong guy as well. In fact, a few years back, he decided he wanted to try to break the record for the most pull-ups done in 24 hours. Uh, that thought has never crossed my mind once. Like, I've never, ever woken up one morning and thought, you know what? I'm going to prepare to break the 24-hour pull-up record this year. Never once. But th- it did this guy. And so he was training, and uh, he... At the time, he broke it. I think it's been since broke by another uh, Navy SEAL. But at the time, he did 4,025 pull-ups in 17 hours. 4,025. It's safe to say I will never do 4,025 pull-ups in my lifetime. And he did it in, uh, in 17 hours. And at the time, he, he set the world record. Um, but as I mentioned, he's, his real sport is, is ultra marathons and these, these just crazy long runs. He tries to run 450 miles a month, 450 miles a month. Uh, his typical day, I read, is that he wakes up at 3 a.m. for a 15-mile jog before work. Then he rides his bike to and from work. It's a 25-mile trip each way. He rides his bike 25 miles there, 25 miles back at the end of the day. But that's not all. On lunch break, he gets another jog in. He runs between five and seven miles on his lunch break. And then if he's feeling good after he's bicycled home, he'll run another four to five miles at the end of the day. That's crazy. What, a, what, what kind of training? I mean, the, the amount of energy and time and effort, the, the, the way that this man beats his body to prepare for these events is unreal. And these verses we're going to read this morning, though, the Apostle Paul talks about training as well, but a different kind of training. In fact, let's read these verses and see if you can spot where he brings in this athletic imagery. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 6 through 10. In referring back to the verses we've already looked at, he starts off in verse 6. He says, if you put these things, the warnings about false teachers, before the brothers, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, 
especially of those who believe. I know we've prayed a couple of times this morning, but I just want to pray one more time as we get ready to dive into these verses together. Our Heavenly Father, what important truths you have revealed to us through your word. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear that we might accept this call, this command to train ourselves for godliness. Lord, we need to understand what you mean and how we're supposed to do this. May a passionate pursuit of a life of godliness be true of every single person in this church. We train ourselves for godliness. Teach us this morning, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this, um, this training process and what we're being, being trained for, I, I wrote down, we just need to take some time and, and realize what a description of godliness is, what he means when he calls us to train ourselves for godliness. The training we already mentioned, uh, preparing for an athletic event, preparing for your career, trying to stay in peak physical condition is important, and he actually addresses that. In, um, in verse 8, he says, bodily training is of some value. I, as, a, as, a, as a fat kid growing up, I really used to like the King James uh, version where it says, uh, bodily exercise profiteth little. And I thought, all right, amen to that. It's worthless. I think, though, that this is probably a better, tra- better translation, that there's value to staying in shape. We all know that. We, we all know that we feel better when we're healthy. I mean, there's, there's really some value to being um, uh, uh, just you know, taking time to take care of our bodies. But over and above that, he says um, that godliness is of, value, uh, is of value in every way. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That word train is, as you would expect, it's, it's a word that was used commonly for ath- athletes, training for uh, competitions. It's the, it's the Greek word that we get the word gymnasium from. It's just surrounded with athletic imagery. And he says, I want you to put that kind of effort into godliness. This, this word godliness is a, is a unique word. It's the Greek word eusebia, and it's used 15 times in the New Testament, but 10 of those times are used right here in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Particularly in Paul's exhortations to Timothy, he keeps coming back to this concept of godliness. Well, what does it mean? The, the Greek dictionaries define it as, like a, as an awesome respect given to God. It's also defined as devoutness or piety, but that, that still doesn't help me wrap my mind around it. I read some other things, and I think it does help to notice how Paul contrasts it. He says, in training for godliness, you're also at the beginning of verse 7 to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. He contrasts the two. On one hand... Don't have anything to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourselves for godliness. On one hand, you've got this, this idea of um, the, the, the word irreverent means pointless or worldly. Um, the, the word translated silly in my translation is literally um, old wives' tales. He's like, don't get yourself caught up in things that are unessential, in things that are worldly, in things that are frivolous. We talked about that a little bit last week. He said, rather train yourself for godliness. So we see... The, the definition uh, becoming a little bit clearer as we, we contrast worldliness, 
petty, um, irreverent, frivolous things with a heart that's pursuing godliness. But to try to define it further, I think Jerry Bridges is helpful, and if you ever get a chance to read his book on godliness, uh, boy, that was just profound this week as I was uh, skimming through it and just finding all kinds of gems, and I, I came across this uh, definition that was helpful to me. Godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. It's a devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. Charles Swindoll likes to boil it down even more, and he says, uh, godliness is taking God seriously, reading, hearing the Word of God, and taking your relationship with Him with utmost gravity. Godliness is more than Christian character. It's more than doing the right things. You and I, we can do the right things. It's not that hard to do good stuff. Lots of unbelievers are moral. They do charitable things. They can be generous. You can be zealous. You can be friendly. You can be all these things without being godly. Godliness is more than morals, morality, rule-keeping. It's a heart that is devoted to God. It's a heart that is in love with God. It's a heart that is captured by the beauty and the glory of the God that we profess. God is not interested in us simply keeping the rules outwardly and maintaining some kind of a Pharisaic, ritualistic obedience, some kind of a outward dressing up of, of, of ourselves without dealing with the heart. You can read back to the Old Testament. God was always wanting to get to the people's heart. that They would know Him and love Him. And that's what godliness captures. Godliness springs from knowing the Word of God. Verse 6 tells us that you're to be trained in the words of faith. It doesn't just happen out of the blue Godliness springs from knowing the Word of God. Godliness also springs from relationship. It's cultivating that relationship with God and behavior that flows from that. Godliness also springs from awe, from being amazed with God. You know, there's an old word that we kind of don't use in Christian circles. I should say it's a phrase that we don't use very often. It's the phrase, the fear of God. You see, sometimes we're a little bit skittish with that because uh, that phrase has been used to beat people up and at times maybe to convey this idea that God's this big, angry deity that even after you get saved, we still need to kind of tiptoe around and make sure that we're minding our P's and Q's and and don't talk too loudly or we'll get shushed. And um, we can get this impression, if we're not understanding the fear of God rightly, that that God is some God that that we have to... um, be afraid of, to, to be, that um, he's distant, he's cold, he's aloof. That, that's not what the fear of God biblically communicates. The fear of God communicates a reverential awe. You see, as blessed as it is that I can go boldly to the throne room of grace, I, you and I, if you're a Christian, you can go to God anytime, day or night, and just talk to him. You don't have to go and kill a chicken and, and make a sacrifice or go through this elaborate ritual. You can, just, you can just talk to him, and you can pour out your heart to him. It is a privilege to be able to have that access to God, but we must not miss the other balance of scriptures that reminds us that our God is a consuming fire, that our God must be approached with reverential awe. 
And if we know our God, we don't come before Him flippantly. We may become, come before Him freely with bold access to His grace, but, but there's a, there's a, a reverence, the, the fear of God. And when you spend time getting to know your God, the more you get to know Him, the more you're cultivating this sense of awe, this devotion to Almighty God. And when that devotion begins to work itself out in your behavior, that's godliness. That's godliness. And make no mistake about it, this is a practical, practical truth. Godliness is not a term that is relegated to the ivory tower, the dusty halls of academia. Godly, a godly person is not someone who is morose and stuffy, somber and dull, always grunting and gruff and, and doesn't know how to laugh or enjoy a joke. That's not godliness. Godliness is a nearness to God. Sure, there may, there, the, the outflow should be a serious mindedness about the Christian life, but it won't be gruffness, aloofness, grumpiness. Godliness is practical. You and I, we, we have a lot in life, is the, the little video clip we showed beforehand reminded us, you know, we get so busy at Christmas time. We've got family gatherings to go to and, you know, Christmas baking and Christmas cards and it can be a stressful time. Life in general can be stressful, right? If you're a parent, you've got kids going to and from school and, and practices and life is, life can get crazy. But we dare not think that somehow this idea of godliness should be detached or it's, it's not, not practical. It can't be a part of this busy life that we live with kids and works and, and, and mortgages and church activities. And it's very practical. It should permeate everything we do. We begin with a sense of awe of God. And as that transforms our life we begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we live these lives of busyness and craziness, we, we bring godliness, a holy life to bear on our family relationships, on those relatives that we're struggling to get along with at family gatherings over the next couple of weeks. We're co-workers. Godliness becomes a very practical thing. Because the time we've spent with God has begun to transform our heart. And now we can touch others' lives as God works that out in and through us. Professor Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary once startled a group of his young seminarians by, by this quote from Robbie, Robert Murray McShay. He was talking about the, the, the most important thing that a pastor needs to have. And all the students were expecting oratorical abilities, the, the ability to be a good counselor or, or, or maybe craft a good sermon or lead a great building campaign. But Robert Murray McShay says, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That I know God, that I love God, that I walk with God. That's not just true for pastors, it's true for all of us. 
Moms and dads, your kids' greatest need is your personal holiness, godliness. Grandparents, bosses, you name it. You think about any of the relationships in your life. They don't need your money. They don't, they don't need even your time and your energy nearly as much is they need to see you walk with Jesus. To see you pursuing God, loving God, being devoted to God. All those other things come second. The greatest thing that we can give our kids, the greatest thing that we can give our grandkids, our spouses, any relationship you think of, is our walk with the Lord. As I said, that this term is not something that sits in the ivory tower and the dusty halls of academia. Godliness is not a stained glass word for worship, Charles Swindoll says. It doesn't describe serene expressions, bowed heads, or folded hands. It's not a word for the monastery or the nunnery. Godliness is alive and active. It marches out into the world and shines the gospel light. It's like this. It's awe, then action. It's awe, then action. It starts vertically and manifests itself horizontally in our relationships with others. This is godliness. I want to give you a little picture of godliness, and that's a man by the name of Enoch. Enoch is a guy who gets very little press time in Scripture, only mentioned a couple of times and just briefly. He first shows up in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, and it tells us, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Um, the first thing that, that we see if we think about Enoch being a picture of godliness is that he walked with God. That's this first stage, this, this awe of God. When you go for a walk with somebody, you're, you're, you're getting alone with them and you're spending time. You're walking in lockstep. Usually the purpose for a walk is to be able to enjoy the other person's company and to talk and to, to enjoy each other, to get to know them better. Enoch used to walk with God. I don't know what that looked like. I, I just can't even imagine. So he walked with him. He was with God. You know, that's our first and greatest goal. It has to be. You and I must, if we're to be any use in the world to our families, to our communities, in getting the gospel out, we must walk with God. We must spend time alone with Him so that we can hear His Word, so that His Spirit can minister to our spirit. Enoch walked with God. If we're to live godly lives, we must first walk with God. And then when it manifests itself, it's that awe and then action. Enoch walked with God, and then secondly, Enoch pleased God. Awe in action. In Hebrews chapter 11, the famous faith chapter that goes through and lists all these men and women of God from the Old Testament, and it talks about how they lived godly lives of faith, believing and trusting in what they could not see. And Enoch is one of the first ones mentioned. 
And it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So Enoch actually was one of two people that we have recorded in the Bible that did not die. Enoch and Elijah, they were taken up into heaven. It says he walked with God. He did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. What, a, what an awesome testimony. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, you and I, we get caught up in so many different pursuits, so many different goals. I want to be this. I want to have that. I want to achieve this. What if our goal was simply to please God? And that's, those are the words that we long to hear when we meet our Savior face to face. What if that shaped everything that we did? Does this please God? Does this glorify God? Let us be people like Enoch who walk with God and live lives that are pleasing to God. You can imagine, though, this is probably going through your mind right now, this is a pretty tall order. A life of godliness, of of pursuing God, of spending time with Him, and then allowing that to manifest itself in my, in my life? It's going to take training. That's the third thing that I wrote down here. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. This will not happen overnight. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. There's no Tinkerbell sprinkling godly pixie dust over us, and all of a sudden the next day we're, we're godly. It doesn't happen like that. I, uh, I, I have something to admit. I've always thought it would be cool to be able to have a six-pack. Not the kind you buy at the convenience store. I'm talking about physically have a six-pack. I thought that'd be pretty awesome to be in that kind of shape, have a six-pack. Never have done it, ever. Um, and I've tried to find ways to make it easy on me. You know, there's got to be a pill that they've created that can automatically make it. Or if I, you know, if I go to the gym maybe once a month, come on. The reality is, getting in that kind of physical condition, we all know it takes work. There, there's no quick solutions to be able to get in that kind of peak physical capacity. Just like the ultra-marathon runner we mentioned at the beginning, if he's going to compete in these, these marathons where he runs for miles and miles and miles, he's got to train, he's got to put in the hard work. And to live godly lives, whether this is what you want to hear this morning or not, you've got to put in the work. It will take time. Paul uses a word that is very clear, that it takes energy, effort, in focus. In fact, I wrote down a couple of things that it, that it takes here. If you're going to train yourself for godliness, first of all, it takes discipline. It takes discipline. For some of us, that's a bit of a four-letter word. We don't like to think of that kind of responsibility in any effort of any, any area of life. Paul calls us here to be people who are disciplined, who are focused on training ourselves to live a holy life. An athlete who is trying to be able to prepare for an event that's going to require him to be in top-notch condition, he can't just slack. He can't just hit the snooze bar like I do when I plan to go to the gym early in the morning. He can't just say, you know what, 
I went, I, I worked out this morning, so I'm going to have all the Big Macs I want and a big bowl of ice cream right before bed. I've earned it. Everything about their training is conditioned, it's focused, it's clear. The food they eat, the types of exercises they do, the amount of sleep that they get at night, everything is bringing into focus their lives into this one goal, this heartbeat, this desire to compete in this event. And Paul uses this terminology because he said, Christians, we should be like that. Like, we are running a race. God has called us to be faithful. He's called us to live lives of godliness. Everything that we do needs to filter into to that, that goal, to boil down to the, the desire to have a practical holiness. Awe in action. First devotion, then the fruit of the Spirit. And we know that there are an umpteen million things to distract us. Because I get it. I know that there are are things shouting at us, clamoring for our attention. And if we don't have a razor-sharp focus, we will be distracted. Whether it's It's that temptation to hit the snooze alarm when you're getting up to go study the Word of God. You think, ah, I'm just going to sleep in today and I'll start tomorrow. Whether it's that temptation to skimp on your prayer time, to ignore the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, whatever it might be, there are always calls to pursue something else to lose your focus, to distract you. But just like an Olympic athlete, we too must have a focus, a narrow focus, so that when it comes time to doing family devotions or putting on a Netflix show late at night because you're tired, you don't want to deal with the kids before bedtime, you don't want to deal with the wrestling match that, that can be family devotions, or when it comes to sitting down and carving out that time to have a discipling relationship once a week with somebody, and you think, I don't want to give up my lunch hour to do something like that. Some me time, time to watch some YouTube videos or scroll Facebook during my lunch break. I don't want to give that up. Whatever it might be, God is calling us to a narrow-focused, passionate pursuit of a life of godliness. I'm going to give you two warnings, though, under this discipline thing. First of all, just as if, just as athletes who are all in often would get, will get called fanatics. If you're pursuing godliness like an athlete is going nuts about his training, people will think you're a fanatic. Even, maybe especially in the Christian community. You mean you spend more than five minutes a day in prayer? Like, you seriously read through the Bible once a year? What is that? I don't have that kind of time. Come on. When you are pursuing God at the level that we're being called to pursue God, you will have people that think you're nuts. 
Just as most of us thought that guy that runs 450 miles in a month is nuts, so too, if you're pursuing God with this clear, single-minded devotion, you'll be thought extreme. The second warning uh, that I want to share with you is, um, is you don't have any excuses. Um, most of us, I, if I'm shattering somebody's dream this morning, I'm so sorry, but most of us in this room are not going to be professional athletes. I'm sorry. Uh, hopefully, if you're in your mid to upper 30s, you've already realized that, that your pursuits of an NFL career are, are pretty well over. Most of us are not going to be professional athletes. Some of us may, but most of us are not. Um, we just don't have what it takes. We, we don't, don't have genetically or the, the devotion there. But here's the thing, though. When it comes to godliness, we all have what it takes. Um, in, um, in 2 Peter 1.3, Peter wrote to the Christians there. It says, his divine power has granted us all things. Do you get that? I looked at the Greek. It means all things. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. That word godliness is the same word that's used here in 1 Timothy. You and I have been given by God everything we need to have to pursue a life of godliness. One of my greatest pet peeves as a pastor is when um, people come to me and they'll ask me to pray for something because they'll say, you know, you're closer to the big guy. Or, or they'll say, well, yeah, yeah you know, you're going to spend more time in the Word because you're a pastor. Or, These things are not realistic for the rest of us. It's baloney. You've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. God has not given, like, He's not shortchanged any of you when it comes to giftedness and the ability to relate to Him and know Him and pursue Him. The only thing that keeps us from a life of godliness is our choices. The only thing that keeps me from being godly is me. I can't blame it on the enemy, although he would just soon I not be godly. I can't blame it on anything else. We've all been given that ability to pursue God at this level. Someone who's pursuing a life of godliness needs discipline, but just briefly, second thing they need is a good coach, a good coach. You know, every athlete has, has a coach, needs a coach. And I, I was astounded when I learned, like, Tiger Woods has a swing coach, one of the greatest golfers of all time, and he still gets help tweaking his swing. Steph Curry has people who help him with his shot. That's phenomenal. You're one of the greatest in the world at what you do, and you're still getting coached and helped. It's unbelievable. You know what? There's not one of us who doesn't need someone in our life cheering us on and helping us walk the Christian life. I just said you've been given everything that, that pertains to life and godliness. We have all the spiritual resources in Christ. We have the Word of God. We can carve out the time. But we must have somebody or people in our life who encourage us, who challenge us, who confront us when we're, we're taking a step back. You need a good coach. And then thirdly, you need practice. And by practice, I mean not just uh, practice as you would uh, building up to a season, but by putting these things into a practice. Steph Curry trains for a reason. He's trying to win the Warriors another NBA championship. 
Tiger Woods has a swing coach, and he trains and disciplines himself for a reason, because he wants to win another major. If we take these things, hear these things, and do nothing with them, we don't put them into practice, how sad is that? We know what God has commanded. We know that he has empowered us. And yet to ignore him, to, to say, ah, I don't think so. I'm getting a little more excited about Netflix than I can about this. I can get more excited about watching the NFL or my hobbies or whatever. We fill in the blank with whatever we do that sucks away from our time to pursue godliness We know what God is commanding. We know that he has empowered us to be obedient to those commands and to not do it. Ezekiel ran into the same problem in the Old Testament, and he described the people this way. He says, they come to to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Oh, what a heartbreaking indictment. They heard it. They knew what was expected. They knew what God wanted them to do, and they said, nah, I got a better deal. I got something else I want to pursue more. And if, and if you want to, you will always find something to get in the way of a pursuit of godliness. Jim Cimbala, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, said, our greatest fear as pastors should not be that people leave our church but that they would stay in our church and remain unchanged. Through these verses today, the Apostle Paul reminds us to train ourselves for godliness. He says in verse 10, he says, To this end I toil and strive. This is my whole passionate pursuit that I could get you guys to open your eyes to the the wonders of knowing God in allowing him to transform your heart and life in such a way so then that you live that out. Being trained for godliness begins with awe of God. If it's been a long time since you've been in awe of God, oh, I commend to you. Walk with him. Spend time with him. Get alone with him. Carve out a Saturday morning and get away with just your Bible and a pad of paper and a pencil. And get on your knees before God and say, God, I, I have never ever in my life, or it's been a long time since I've pursued this kind of devotion to you. I want to know you. And then as you begin to get to know God, the godliness part is that being worked out then in your relationships, in our church, in your home, at work, as you fulfill the Great Commission. It begins with awe, this pursuit of godliness, and it ends with action. May we be people who train ourselves for godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not be satisfied with the distractions that the enemy constantly lobs in our path, things that distract us from a passionate pursuit of you. May we be willing to do the hard work of getting up a little little earlier in the morning, cutting out some screen time so that we can 
spend more time getting to know you and deepening our walk with you. And then so that that manifests itself, that we would develop a deeper awe of you, it would translate into action. Father, I just ask that it would start here at Christmas time. Set aside time in the busyness and just wonder. Stand back and wonder at a God who would love sinful creation so much that He would take on flesh and blood, become one of us for the whole purpose of dying for us. May your redemptive grace just captivate us this Christmas season. And as we stand in awe of that joyful obedience of Jesus Christ and gaze upon him in all of his glory, would our heart be transformed, God? Would we develop a passion for godliness? And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.